For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. The title of our sermon this morning is Love Through Conflict. Love Through Conflict. This is Acts 15, verses 36 through 41. By Acts 15, as we come to Acts 15, Paul has concluded his first missionary journey. That very extensive endeavor, his first missionary journey, was followed by a trip to Jerusalem for the very first church council in the history of the church, a council that took place in Jerusalem over the gospel. After which, after that church council, Paul then returns to his home base in Syrian Antioch to deliver his report to the church there, to deliver that report from the council uh, to the church. After a very brief layover in Antioch, Paul immediately determines to set out again. And his purpose for setting out again is to strengthen the churches that have been planted through his first missionary journey and to, from Acts 16, to deliver to them the report that he received back from the council at Jerusalem. Paul and his work was diligent, right? James Montgomery Boyce said that there were no vacations for the apostle Paul. Right? Paul didn't take vacations. He was just right back to the work. In Acts chapter 15, verse 36, that passage records the decision. Verse 36, then after some days, not weeks or months, but after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back now and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. But the account of this trip in Acts 15 begins with a report of a serious disagreement that takes place between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas had obviously agreed to take the trip with Paul and they begin to make their plans. However, trouble arises between Paul and Barnabas when Barnabas suggested that his cousin, John Mark, accompany them on the trip. Paul refused and the matter became very contentious. Verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And notice the language in the text. Barnabas was determined and Paul insisted. Verse 39, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. Now, a casual read of this text might initially miss the seriousness of this dispute between Paul and Barnabas. The single Greek word translated there as a sharp contention in verse 39, that word describes a fever, pitch, emotional intensity, even anger. It's a word that describes essentially an emotional convulsion that is expressed in words. So this was no minor conflict. This was a serious conflict between Paul and Barnabas and very likely the kind of conflict that involves shouting. It's a conflict that ended with Paul and Barnabas going their separate ways. Paul and Barnabas had spent 12 years serving the Lord together and now they are parting and going their separate ways after 12 years of ministry together. The rift between them 
had to do with John, whose surname is Mark. The reason for the rift is given that John had departed from them in Pamphylia. If you remember the account from Acts 13 on Paul's first missionary journey, on their first journey together in Acts uh, Acts 13, they set sail from Paphos. They land at Perga in Pamphylia at the foot of the Tarsus Mountains, a very dangerous territory, very dangerous area. And Luke records that in Acts 13, John simply left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now Luke, in the book of Acts, gives no indication as to why John Mark left. But Paul obviously saw his leaving as blameworthy. Paul saw it as betrayal. Maybe not a betrayal personally, maybe as a betrayal personally, but certainly a betrayal of the work that had to be done. John, in the the mind of Paul, John should have kept his commitment. He had failed them in the work. He may have now put the work at risk that Paul and Barnabas would now be forced to go along without him, their helpful assistant. A difficult journey would be made significantly more difficult now that John Mark had abandoned them in the work. So Paul believed then that John Mark couldn't be trusted that he couldn't be counted on to finish what he started. And Paul insisted, he insisted in verse 38, he put his foot down. He's not going to risk the work. John would not be coming with them. It wasn't something that Paul compromised on or bargained on. Paul insisted, he put his foot down. And we don't know the reasons, from the text, we don't know the reasons that Barnabas thought differently about the circumstance. We don't know the reasons why. But we know that Barnabas thought differently. Barnabas saw the circumstance differently than Paul did. Some say it was for their family connection, right? Because John Mark was Barnabas' cousin. But more than likely, it was the way that Barnabas saw the situation. It was the perspective from which Barnabas viewed the situation. Barnabas' own name uh, is a name that means son of encouragement. Barnabas was an encourager. And he obviously very firmly believed that John Mark should be given a second chance. Right? Barnabas saw the rift, saw the conflict from a different perspective. Verse 39, so Barnabas took Mark and he sailed to Cyprus. Verse 40, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I want you to think with me about this conflict for a moment. Think with me about the lessons that can be learned, the observations that we can make on this text. The conflict arose over John Mark in the context of this trip. However, there were several factors, several other factors that complicated the matter, that could have contributed to the ways in which both Paul and Barnabas viewed the circumstance. And that's the way it's going to be. With the conflicts that we face, they're going to be perspective. They're going to be factors, contributions. They're going to be things that that color or tint our perspective on a matter. That's the way it's going to work. And we don't know if or how much these various factors contributed to the com- to complexity or the conflict between them, but in virtually every conflict, there are multiple factors involved. First, think about it with me. Barnabas and John Mark were cousins. Obviously very close. Barnabas and John Mark were working together in ministry. And Barnabas brought John Mark, Paul brought John Mark along with them on their first missionary journey together. 
Barnabas and John Mark were cousins and very close. Second, Barnabas, we know from scripture, had sacrificed much for the work of the gospel. Barnabas in Acts chapter four had sold his land and had given the proceeds from the land that he sold to the church. So Barnabas had sacrificed much for the work of the ministry. Third, Paul had persecuted the church. We know that from his own testimony. He stood by and consented to Stephen's death. That was widely known and known by Barnabas. And yet, and yet Barnabas supported Paul. In those early days after Paul's conversion, Barnabas was the one who introduced him to leaders in Jerusalem, leaders, leaders of the church. But all of this was in the heart and mind of both Paul and Barnabas as they worked together in ministry. Maybe Barnabas thought that Paul had been given a second chance by the Lord. Maybe John Mark, did, did, maybe John Mark needed a second chance <laughs> in his own failings. We're all sinners. Fourth, the last year involved a situation in the last 18 months. There was a situation in Antioch that's recorded in Galatians chapter two where Paul openly and publicly rebuked both Peter and Barnabas for their hypocrisy. If you remember that account from Galatians chapter two, that was a very stern rebuke. The text says that Paul openly rebuked them to their face in the presence of all because they stood condemned. This was a very stern rebuke. He essentially, he essentially called out Barnabas for his cowardice, for his hypocrisy. They had divided themselves from Gentile brothers because they feared the Jews. And Paul acknowledged that, recognized that as cowardice, as hypocrisy. And Barnabas agreed. Barnabas understood that he had sinned. It was a stern public correction. We might even be justified in using the word, word harsh to describe it, okay? Now, the point is this. These are circumstances. These are contributing factors that we can glean from the text of scripture. The point is this. The way that we see or perceive a matter doesn't happen in a vacuum. The way that you perceive or see a situation doesn't happen in a vacuum. There will, will always be other factors involved that influence our perspective. There will be circumstances uh, because of those things in which we are unable to arrive at a, at a resolution. That's not because God's word doesn't work, quote unquote work, or because there's some deficiency in the efficacy of God's word. It's because we're sinful, because we're fallen people. We're prone to see things differently. We're prone to have our perspectives colored. We're prone to not always think alike. We don't always see things as they really are. And we must accept that fact and then accept the fact in relation to that, that, we're, that conflicts are going to occur. We're going to have disagreements. We're not always going to see things from the same perspective. And we're going to have to deal with disagreements. We're going to have to deal with conflicts. We may have a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other, building the same wall and fighting the same enemy, but find it necessary to work at different points along the same wall in a way that seems best to us. Laboring with a clear conscience, laboring in faithfulness, laboring for the sake of the Lord and for his church, there are going to be circumstances in which we disagree and we're going to see things from a different perspective. We'd prefer to think 
in a perfect world, right? We'd prefer to think that in every situation in which we find ourselves, there is a decisive right and a decisive wrong. But even from our own perspectives, brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, we acknowledge that's not realistic. We are not going to see things. Or the way that we perceive to see things is not always the way that God sees them. Certainly not the way that our brother may see them or our sister may see them. And when we think those ways, when we come to those conflicts, most often we think that we ourselves are right and our brother's wrong. <laughs> we believe that we're right. But that's often not the case. There are times when it simply isn't possible for various reasons to work through biblical steps to reach a resolution. There are times where there will be conflicts and we're not able to arrive at a biblical resolution. There, that is no excuse. That's no excuse. And it's no excuse not to work through the steps that God gives us in his word, the wisdom that God provides for us in his word. It's no excuse to circumvent or to undermine that biblical wisdom. But it is a reality. In Acts 15, you see that displayed between two godly men in the early church. In Acts 15, you end up seeing two godly, faithful leaders in the early church with two very different but very earnest convictions about their service to the Lord, and they end up going their separate ways. They end up going their separate ways. Now, all that said, all that said, here's what you do not see in Acts chapter 15. Here's what you do not see. You'll notice in Acts 15 that neither Paul nor Barnabas are blamed for the rift. Neither one are blamed. You'll also notice that neither is charged with sin for their strong opinions on the matter or for their perspective on the matter, for the way that they see things. Luke doesn't charge them with sin. The Bible doesn't charge them with sin. And neither is charged with sin in the way that they navigated the disagreement. It ended up with them separating and going their separate ways, but neither one of them is, is charged with sin in the way that they conducted themselves in the context of that disagreement. Both did what they thought was best in service to the Lord. Barnabas and John Mark sailed west to Cyprus. Paul and Silas departed east through Syria. You do not see, you do not see Paul or Barnabas lining up members from the church at Antioch to support their opinion against the opinion of their brother. You do not see Paul or Barnabas pulling away disciples after themselves, building allies, supporting them against the opinion of their brother and laboring against the opinion of their brother. You don't see that sin. You don't see them drawing lines in the sand and you don't see them pressuring people in the church at Antioch to take sides on one side of the line or the other. Chris Braun said, when lines are drawn and people align themselves on one side or another, the situation takes on a life of its own. Emails fly. Out-of-town ministry authorities may be contacted for quote-unquote advice. Some people, even those who have not read their Bible for years, begin to search for relevant verses. What you do not see in the conflict that arises in Acts 15, what you do not see is Paul or Barnabas taking steps that will divide the church at Antioch. You do not see it. You do not see, thinking of their context, the circumstances that surround their relationship together, you do not see Barnabas accusing Paul of being harsh with the flock. Here it is, Paul, you're being harsh again. You don't see it. You do not see Paul calling Barnabas a coward 
or a hypocrite, dredging up an old offense in order to score some points against a perceived enemy. You don't see Barnabas accusing Paul of being harsh. After all, Barnabas had been on the receiving end of Paul's public correction. And now Paul, some might say, Paul is being harsh again with John Mark. By this point, they've served 12 years together in ministry, and you see none, after 12 years in ministry together, you see none of the telltale signs that often adorned uh, an unresolved conflict. You don't see any bitterness. There's no indication. There's no indication of an unresolved offense. Paul has taken the lead in their work, and yet you see no envy or bitterness on the part of Barnabas. You do not see Paul presuming to judge his brother's motives. The only reason why you want to bring John Mark along is because he's your cousin, Barnabas. That's the only reason you want him there. You don't see that, right? You don't see Barnabas presuming to judge his brother's character. You don't care about John Mark. You're just trying to get rid of him because he left us in Pamphylia. You don't see him judging Paul's motives. John Mark was the subject himself of Paul's great disappointment But you don't see John Mark conspiring against Paul, embittered against Paul, working against Paul, complaining against Paul. In the text in Acts 15, you see no reviling. You see no gossip. You see no tail-bearing. You see no slander. You see no character assassination. You see no lying accusations. You see no innuendo, no winking of the eye, shuffling of the feet, pointing fingers. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12, the one who walks with a perverse mouth, perversity is in his heart. He devises evil. He sows discord. How do you recognize the one with perversity in his heart? He sows discord. All of that, all of that would have been absurdly immature at best and unbecoming of two godly faithful leaders in the church at Antioch. At worst, Any of that may have indicated a wolf in the midst of the sheep. That's how wolves conduct themselves. Instead, instead of those things that we don't see, in the place of those things that we don't see, as a fruit of refraining from such divisive and destructive conduct, what is it that we do see? What is it that we do see in Acts 15? We see that John Mark continues in the work and proves himself to be faithful over time. Paul sees it. Paul doesn't allow pride or allow bitterness to get in the way of expressing his love for John Mark. Colossians chapter four, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. In time, John Mark proves himself in the sight of the Apostle Paul, Paul is commending him. Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. In the end, both Paul and Barnabas understand that they simply saw the matter differently. Paul remembers Barnabas in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, as his fellow worker, his fellow laborer in the work of the ministry, in the work of the gospel. He commends Barnabas. And in love for the Lord, in love for the Lord's church, and in, in brotherly love for one another, what do Paul and Barnabas do in the midst of this, this sharp contention that arises between them? They restrain themselves from evil. 
They restrain themselves from sin. And providentially then, providentially, if you think about the providence of God through this circumstance, two teams go out preaching the gospel rather than one. The work of the kingdom carries on, and the work of the kingdom carries on not because of them, but the work of the kingdom carries on by the grace of God through the spirit of God in spite of them. The work continues. They restrain themselves from evil. So if you think about this contention in Acts 15, what then are some principles that we can glean from our observations on this passage? First, prepare yourself mentally and prepare yourself spiritually for the eventuality of a disagreement or the eventuality of a conflict between you and another brother, between you and others in the church. Prepare yourself mentally and spiritually for that reality. Disagreements will come. And why? Because someone on one side is always right and someone on the other side is always wrong. No, it's because, brothers and sisters, we see things differently. We see things from different perspectives. There are manifold, manifold factors that contribute to the lens through which we view circumstances. And so we're going to disagree. That's no excuse. We're fallen, sinful human beings. We're not always going to see things as we should. And because of that, there will be conflict. There will be disagreement. Prepare yourself mentally to face that in faithfulness. Prepare yourself spiritually to face that in faithfulness. If a sharp contention can occur in the ministry between Paul and Barnabas, then they will certainly occur in the ministry of this church. The first missionaries in the history of the church disagreed with one another and went their separate ways. Think carefully. Think biblically about how you should handle your disagreements. Police, police officers or those in the military call it situational awareness. Situational. When this happens, here's what I'm going to do. You need to think ahead right now about how you're going to conduct yourself when, not if, when those circumstances arise. And we can't allow raw emotion to govern how we think and govern how we act. We have to be prepared mentally and spiritually knowing that disagreements will arise and that our own hearts can deceive us and that we're prone to justify ourselves. We're prone to make excuses. We're prone to bitterness. Prone to thinking we're right and thinking our brother is wrong. We have to be prepared for that eventuality. Second, restrain your tongue. We are to restrain our tongues. Proverbs 26, verse 20. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. The fire won't burn. Where there is no tailbearer, the strife ceases. Why does the strife continue? Because there is a tailbearer, right? As charcoal is to burning coals and wood is to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. When we are offended, there is a tremendous, tremendous temptation to talk to others about it. Now think about that yourself and tell me if that's not the case with both you and I. When we are offended, 
there is this tremendous temptation to talk to someone else about it. You may sincerely need counsel. You may sincerely want and need prayer. And those things are to be expected and to be understood. But too often, too often, we simply want sympathy for our case. It feels good to be affirmed. We want allies in our fight. If only the fight that takes place between our ears. But nevertheless, we want allies. We want affirmation. We want justification for our thoughts, justification for our words, justification for our deeds. It feels good to be affirmed. It feels good to affirm someone else. Yeah, brother, you're right. right? It feels good to affirm, oh, you poor brother, you poor sister. Oh, I can't believe all that happened to you. Right? It feels good to affirm. feels good to be affirmed. We want allies. The Lord has been very, very clear. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Alone. And think of all the, the justifications we offer up when that simple admonition is not followed. Did you go to your brother alone? Proverbs chapter 25, verse 9. Debate your case with your neighbor and do not disclose the secret to another. Notice Solomon calls it a secret because it's between you and your neighbor. Don't disclose it to another. Lest he who hears it expose your shame and your rep reputation be ruined. Failure to tread very carefully. Failure to uh, tread biblically obeying the Lord will lead to catastrophic damage as we have seen and experienced ourselves. A whisperer separates friends. A gossip will ruin relationships and contentious men can divide churches. It is devastating, devastating when people do not, no matter how godly you may think them to be or how godly they may profess themselves to be, we are fallen and sinful human beings and catastrophic damage occurs when we fail to follow these simple and clear admonitions from scripture. It is critically important, brothers and sisters, that we grow in our ability to deal biblically with our loose tongue. But it's also critically important, brothers and sisters, that we grow in our ability to deal biblically with a loose tongue in our brother or in our sister in each other. We have to do both. We have to do both. And I acknowledge and recognize how difficult this is. It's not easy, but we have to grow in this area. Settle it now. There is going to arise conflict. Settle it now. There will be disagreements. There will be something that you'll be confronted with we must deal faithfully and deal biblically with it. We must. Let me offer some suggestions with respect to that. If someone comes to you, if someone comes to you and complains about another person, if someone comes to you about their offense with another person, we have to be simply committed to asking the question, have you spoken with them about your concerns? It's a very simple question. And it's a way to um, raise the issue um, in a way that should not alienate you and your brother. Have you spoken with them 
about your concerns. When you ask that question, you have to know that we are all tempted to respond with one of several standard excuses. We're all tempted to respond with excuses, with self-justification. Often at times, it takes a little time for someone come, to come to the realization that what they've done is sinful. So we respond initially, we respond with excuses. It doesn't do any good. I've tried to go to them, I've tried to talk to them, it doesn't do any good. He won't listen to me. Even if I went, he, he's not gonna listen to me. He's never available, I can't get, I can't get with him. <laughs> well, I plan to, I intend to. I intend to go speak with him. Or it's not that big of a deal. I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. Listen, it was important enough that you brought it up to me. Why would you bring it up to me and not bring it up to that person? <laughs> if it's no big deal, why did you bring it up at all? I know it's not easy. But we must cultivate the habit of not accepting those excuses. We have to cultivate a habit. For the sake of love, for the sake of the Lord's church, we have to cultivate a habit of not accepting excuses. If it was important enough to bring up, then it's certainly important enough to resolve that with the person they're offended with, resolve that with the person that they're speaking about behind their back, and resolve that for the sake of our relationships together, love for one another in this church. We must prepare mentally and prepare spiritually for the eventuality we must restrain our tongues from evil, restrain our tongues from sin, both in ourselves and in our brother. Thirdly, we must submit to established authority. Submit to established authority. Just as a teenager's disagreement with his parents is no excuse for that teenager to disobey the Bible and rebel against his parents, your disagreement here is no excuse for you to disobey the Bible and work against established authority in the Lord's church. We cannot do it. London Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 26, article 13. No church members upon any offense taken by them, big or small, having, perfor having performed their duty required of them toward the person they are offended at ought to disturb any church order or absent themselves from the assemblies of the church or in administration of any ordinances upon the account of such offense at any of their fellow members. I want to repeat that. Right? No church member upon any offense, that circumstance which will certainly arise when you take offense, when there's a disagreement, there's a conflict, there's a sharp contention that arises between you and another person in the church, once you have performed all your duty with respect to that contention, going to them alone, seeking their repentance, seeking reconciliation, following the steps given to us in the Bible, dealing with that thing biblically as we ought to deal with it, right? Not repeating a matter, not building allies to your camp, not whispering behind the scenes, calling secret meetings and having conversations over fellowship, quote unquote fellowships about it not speaking behind their back, but after having performed all your biblical duty in working together with that person to resolve that conflict, when you've done as much as you can do, as much as depends upon you live at peace with that person, when you've done all that you can do biblically, they're not to disturb any church order. You're not to absent yourself from the assemblies of the church. You're not to absent yourselves from the administration of any ordinances 
but rather you are to wait upon Christ in the further proceeding of the church. The Lord Christ knows how to lead his church. And he has set the administration of that rule, that government in his church, and he will. He is the, the master, the loving shepherd who walks in the midst of the lampstands. He will care for his church. We can trust in him and wait on his kind governance. God has appointed some in the church to lead. And he has appointed others in the church to submit to their leadership. That does not mean that those who lead may abuse their leadership. There should be no abuse of their leadership. And it does not mean that decisions may be made that you disagree with. There will be decisions that are made that you disagree with. You should submit to those decisions as long as those decisions do not, are not sin, do not cause you to sin, do not call you to sin against God. We must prepare mentally and spiritually for the eventuality. We must restrain our tongues. We must submit to established authority. We must, fourthly, continue to serve the Lord in faith. Like Paul and Barnabas, they continued steadfastly in the work of the Lord, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Like John Mark, we must not shrink back in the face of adversity. John Mark might have said to himself, that's it, I'm done, right? When he left them at Pamphylia, he might have left the faith altogether and said, I'm done. John Mark doesn't do that. John Mark perseveres. And you don't have any indication in Scripture that John Mark was embittered or that John Mark was slandering or gossiping or complaining against Paul or working against Paul and Barnabas in the church. John Mark didn't do that. Rather, we should serve the Lord in faith. Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul, lest you shrink back from the work. Next, we should love without hypocrisy. That's Romans chapter 12. Love in this circumstance bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love does not fail. Love endures. Love covers a multitude of sins. Love persists. We're to love in the midst of that sharp contention. That person that you're offended with is not your enemy. They are the Lord's freedman. They are the Lord's servant. They are the Lord's blood-bought son or daughter. They are not your enemy. We're not to treat them like enemies. Love without hypocrisy. Where love cannot or should not cover sin, lastly, we have to deal biblically then with sin. As our brother was talking about this morning, we're not to minimize sin. We're not to sweep sin under the rug. We're not to ignore sin or neglect sin. We're to deal biblically with sin. That dealing biblically with sin involves loving confrontation. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 18, various other texts. And we are to carefully follow the biblical process. Carefully follow biblical principles. And we cannot make excuses. When you have done that all, as much as depends upon you, you're not compromising in your obedience to God's word. You're not sinning against your brother in the way that you're conducting yourself. You're not making excuses. And it would be sin for you to submit. Then it would be best for you to lovingly leave rather than cause contention or strife in the church. It would be biblically justified, biblically best for you to depart before um, sin begins to divide the Lord's church. Continue to work at another place on the wall. 
but continue to work on the wall. There is, there is a time, there is a time that comes when it is best that you leave. And we've seen that exemplified in our own experience. Paul and Barnabas, eventually, they get to a point where they go their separate ways. There was not a resolution. There was not a resolution to that conflict and they go their separate ways. Lastly, what about those who are sinning in ways that Paul and Barnabas did not? When there's a conflict in the Lord's church, what about those who are sinning in that conflict when there's sin involved? What about those who have reviled our church? What about those who revile their brothers or their sisters? What about those who are slandering others, slandering our elders, slandering our church? What about those who have sinned against you and they feel entirely justified in their conduct, entirely justified in their actions? What about those who have left and they harbor unresolved offenses against us? In answer to those questions, I want to give you a sneak peek at a text we're going to consider a few weeks from now. And that is Romans chapter 12. Turn there with me. It's a text that our brother went to this morning in Sunday school. And just briefly, I want to uh, refer to this text, and we're going to cover it in more detail um, soon. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. How are we to conduct ourselves when others have sinned and they are unrepentant, irreconcilable in their sin? There's doesn't appear to be a means to our resolution because frankly, they're unreasonable in their sin. They've sinned and they're not, they're not seeing it. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The structure of this text um, is a little bit challenging. But the text is what we would call an A, B, C, B, A, chiasm. It's a chiasm. It has that structure, A, B, C, B, A. We're going to discuss that a little more when we get to this text. There are three principles in the text. An A principle, a B principle, and a C principle. And the text is in that format, A, B, C, B, A. Those principles lined out for us in the chiasm, in the chiasm. With that in mind, I want you to look at the text. Verses 17 and verse 21 go together in the structure of Paul's thought. They represent an A principle, if you will. Verses 17 and 21 communicate similar thoughts. Point A, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil, rather, with good. What is the principle of point A? The principle is this. You must not take revenge. You must not take revenge. Verse 19 adds clarification to that theme. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Vengeance is characterized by a desire to retaliate. You ever felt the desire to retaliate? When you're offended, it's generally the first emotional 
response that comes boiling over to the surface. The, the necessity or the desire to retaliate. It's an emotional response often first. It is to seek satisfaction through retaliation. That's what taking vengeance is. To seek satisfaction through retaliation. The Bible strictly condemns personal retaliation, personal vengeance. Repay no one evil for evil. Do not avenge yourselves. Do not be overcome by that evil desire. Chris Bronze, again, in his excellent book, uh, Unpacking Forgiveness. I think we have it on our shelves. Uh, I highly commend it to you. Chris Braun says, surely the reason that Paul is so emphatic in forbidding revenge is that it seems so right. It feels so right. We are hardwired to be sensitive to injustice. Hardwired to be sensitive to injustice. And we're tempted to take justice into our own hands when we've been sinned against in that way. In the book, Bronze brings up the example of Carl Lee from John Grisham's novel, A Time to Kill. That title, A Time to Kill, from Ecclesiastes. Uh, and the basic premise behind the book is a justification for revenge or an apologetic for revenge. That's what um, they're exploring, the morality of that in that book. The book opens with a brutal rape of a 10-year-old girl. Um, it is maddening. Maddening. That 10-year-old girl happens to be the daughter of Carl Lee. Carl Lee wants justice. And when we see things like that, we can certainly sympathize, can't we? We can certainly sympathize. It is abominable. It is an aberration. It's awful. So what does Carl Lee do? Carl Lee buys a gun and he kills the men who raped his daughter. In the process, I think showing the reality of what happens when someone takes vengeance into their own hands is that Carl Lee leaves a wake of disaster in his own, in his own way. Um, in doing that. The rest of the book, after Carl Lee murders those who raped his daughter, the rest of the book is about whether or not Carl Lee should be convicted by a court of law, convicted for murdering the men who raped his daughter. Carl Lee clearly broke the law. He clearly broke the law. The book explores the morality of Carl Lee's actions. It explores the morality of vengeance. The Bible, we don't have to explore that, that question. The Bible is really clear. Vengeance is forbidden. Revenge is forbidden for the Christian. Now, the ways in which the, you and I are often tempted to retaliate, and you can understand, if you're a father or someone that you love dearly, placed in that kind of circumstance, you can certainly understand the temptation to vengeance, right? Ways in which we are often tempted to retaliate don't usually rise to that level. How do you respond when you're offended? Do you respond with a silent treatment? That's retaliation. That's vengeance. Do you respond with a cold shoulder? That's retaliation. That's taking vengeance. Have you ever been offended by one person and you tell someone else about it? What are you doing? You're assaulting their reputation, assaulting their character. You're esteeming yourself over them. That's retaliation. It's a form of taking vengeance when you gossip, when you slander. It's a form of retaliation. It's esteeming yourself over or against another. It's a form of vengeance. 
Pastors and teachers here are always talking. <laughs> Just comes with the, the job description, right? Eventually, you are going to take offense with something that is said. It's, it's going to happen eventually. Prepare yourself spiritually and mentally for that eventuality. When you bring it up in private meetings behind their back, that's vengeance. That's retaliation. Have you ever disciplined your child in anger? That's a form of retaliation. It's a form of vengeance. Bronze again. The tragedy of revenge is that so often it is the warm gulf waters over which hurricanes of violence will circle. Those waters might feel nice to swim in, but they're ripe for violence and destruction. Small winds of injustice, whether real or only perceived, swirl about, each increasing and bringing about more and more and more retaliation. One act of revenge leads to another. With each rotation, with each wind that blows, the cycle picks up speed until a full-scale storm begins. Before you know it, more are sucked into the violence and the cycle gets even bigger. Revenge or retaliation may seem right. We are tempted to justify our revenge, tempted to justify our retaliation for the sake of justice. Right? What we're doing is just. What we're doing is righteous. When it's nothing more than taking vengeance into our own hands and retaliating. Retaliating because of an offense against someone, we may not, we may not even see that thing as it really is. We have our own perspectives on those matters. Is it biblically definable? Is it clearly objective? objective sin. It has to be defined. It has to be established. That kind of retaliation is sinful. It is destructive and the Bible forbids it. Point A, we're not to retaliate. Do not seek vengeance. Point B, hang in there with me. Point B in our text is to demonstrate love through conflict. We're to love through conflict. In the second part of verse 17, you see point B. You see this B theme. And that's stated this way at the end of verse 17. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. That statement in verse 17 is con connected to its counterpart, the B theme, in verse 20. Therefore, have regard for the good things in the sight of all men, right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do him good, love through the conflict. Love, even love your enemies through the conflict. Now the text here is in the context of Paul's initial admonition that we've studied together in Romans chapter 12, verse nine. Love must be without hypocrisy. Love not merely in word or in tongue, but love in deed and in truth. Our love, in particular, our love for, those, uh, for that which is honorable, or in particular, our love for those who have offended us must be a sincere love. It must be a genuine love. Paul calls us to have regard for that which is honorable or good in the sight of all men. Consider that. The statement implies intentional thought. The statement implies or suggests active planning. What good 
for them can I do in this circumstance? What good can I do, should I do for them in this circumstance? We're to actively plan, intentionally think about the good that we can do in that circumstance. Rather than think about or spend our energy thinking about how we can retaliate or thinking about the wrong that they've done or focusing on our offense, we are to spend our time, spend our energy thinking of ways to quell the animosity and to subdue the storm by doing them good. Looking for opportunities to demonstrate love without complaining. Looking for opportunities to demonstrate love in the midst of or through conflict. You may offer to talk it through. Offer to reconcile. Offer to forgive. Sometimes all you can do is offer. But that offer should be made. Kindly show them how they are sinning. Kindly, lovingly confront them in their sin. It wouldn't be loving to just ignore the sin and forgive and forget, as we learned this morning, without biblical due process. You may offer those things, and sometimes that's all that you can do. But we are to demonstrate a sincere and genuine love even through the midst of conflict. Now that raises the question, if we are to demonstrate love when we're offended, then what about justice? We tend to think about these things as a zero-sum game, right? If I don't assert my rights, then the other person is taking them from me. It's not how the Bible explains our place, our responsibility in conflict. What about justice? Is there to be uh, any accountability or any responsibility for their sinful actions? Absolutely there will be. Does love mean, does responding in love mean that they're going to get away with it? No. Does love dismiss justice? Does our love, demonstrating love, belittle or minimize their sin or minimize justice, ignore justice? No. Point C or theme C in our chiasm comes from verse 19, right in the middle of our text. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather, here it is, give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Justice will be done. Vengeance belongs to God alone. Retributive justice belongs to God alone. God is the one who administers justice. We are commanded here, verse 19, to, quote, give place to the wrath of God against them. Verse 19 Verse 19 in Romans 12, Paul quotes Deuteronomy 32. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, Moses says this, or God says this through Moses, vengeance is mine and recompense. God reassures them. Their foot shall slip in due time. The day of their calamity is at hand. The things that come hasten upon them. God's judgment does not falter. God's judgment is not slack. Verse 43, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and for his people. God's judgment does not slumber or sleep. From the law, from the law in Deuteronomy 32, giving place for wrath is the way in which Israel was instructed to deal with those who sinned against them. That was how Israel was to deal with those who had sinned against them, sinned against the assembly, sinned against the nation, sinned against them personally. What were they to do? 
They weren't to retaliate. They weren't to take vengeance into their own hands. They were to give place to the wrath of God. Paul quotes the text in Romans chapter 12 to instruct us in the same circumstance. Paul here in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, relies upon the reality of hell as ample motivation for why we don't take vengeance into our our own hands, why we leave vengeance to God alone. God himself will deal with them. God himself will deal with the sin. God himself will uh, uphold justice, and he will do so with exacting justice. So we do not avenge ourselves. You could summarize that uh, in verse 19 also by saying, we're not simply to forgive, as our brother instructed us this morning. In other words, there is a place for the wrath of God. There is a place for the judgment of God. Those who sin are under God's providential care, are under God's providential hand. We're not to take vengeance into our own hands. We're not to retaliate, but God will injustice. So we're not to step ahead of God and forgive when we don't know that God himself has forgiven. We are to leave place for the wrath of God. Now, knowing that, brothers and sisters, knowing that, what is the loving thing that we're to do when we find ourselves in a conflict with those who are unrepentant, with those who do not see or acknowledge their own sin? What are we to do? We're to call them to repentance. We're to lovingly talk to them about the ways in which they've sinned. We're to um, present it to them from the text of scripture. We're to define it for them. We're to plead with them to turn from sin and to be reconciled to God. We're to plead with them for their own souls that they would do that. We're not to simply ignore the sin and we're to give place to the wrath of God. How does that impact your fellowship with those who have sinned against you or with those who have sinned against our church or sinned against our elders? There's definitely an impact on your fellowship, isn't there? What's your responsibility to them? You're to love them in the midst of that conflict. And as much as depends upon you, you're to pursue peace and live at peace with all men. As much as depends upon you. You don't accomplish that by ignoring the offense. You don't accomplish that by ignoring the rift or ignoring the conflict. You don't accomplish that by ignoring the sin. You're to do all that you can do You're to do all that you can do. And when you've done all that you can, and that person remains intransigent in their sin, you're to leave place for the wrath of God, give place to the wrath of God and trust in him. One example of Paul employing this very principle is found in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Listen to this. Paul says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Alexander the coppersmith had sinned against the apostle Paul, There was apparently no resolution to that conflict between them. Paul says in verse 14, may the Lord repay him according to his works. Paul is giving place to the wrath of God. He knows that God will exact justice. Verse 15, then he warns, you also must beware of him for he has greatly resisted our words. Alex sinned (laughs) in 2 Timothy chapter four. Paul rested in the fact that God would deal with Alexander the coppersmith. He did not forgive him. Forgiveness can only come with genuine repentance. And he warned others to beware of him. We should warn them also that God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. God's justice will come. So in that, in that principle, we have to avoid two extremes. We have to avoid being vindictive. We have to avoid rushing to retaliate. And we must avoid granting automatic forgiveness with no room 
for the justice of God. And we must, in the midst of that conflict, in the middle, offer sincere love even to those who are our enemies. We must demonstrate a sincere and genuine love even for our enemies. How will that impact and influence your time with those who are unrepentant? How will knowing that, we're gonna look at this text more in detail in a couple of weeks, how will that impact and influence the time that you spend with those who have sinned against the body, against the church, against you personally, or against your elders? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. There should be no schism in the body. There should be no schism in the body, but that the members of the body should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. You might say, if one member is assaulted, (laughs) if one member is sinned against, then we all suffer with that one member. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We are one body in Christ. If someone sins against my brother and there has been a sharp contention between them, that conflict has to be resolved. And as long as that conflict exists, that conflict or that unresolved circumstance don't, doesn't only exist between those two brothers. It exists between the other members of that body. It exists between all of us. That needs to be resolved. It needs to be, there needs to be reconciliation. Ultimately, we have the example of Christ himself in all of this. Jesus Christ took no revenge. He did not retaliate. He prayed for their forgiveness. That prayer, forgive them, Father, they know not what they do. You know that in scripture, there were often times when Jesus Christ forgave someone. Your sins are forgiven you, right? Go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven you. There were multiple times in which Jesus Christ forgave people that he was speaking to. Jesus Christ has power on earth to forgive sins. You'll notice though, at the cross, he didn't forgive them. He prays future for the Father, that the Father might forgive them. When the thief on the cross repented, what did the Lord Jesus Christ say to him? He forgave him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's a future request that upon their repentance, the father would forgive those who had sinned in that way. And lastly, Jesus Christ entrusted him, entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. He committed himself to our heavenly father who judges righteously. We should do the same, amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Thank you for this instruction, this helpful instruction from your word. Thank you, Lord, for the circumstances that you have graciously preserved us through that teach us, Lord, how we are to deal with one another, deal with conflict in the body, and how we are to love through the midst of that conflict. Help us, Lord, to take wisdom from these texts, take wisdom from the experiences that you lead us through, Spirit of God, we pray that you would help us to see things with a biblical perspective, see things rightly. We pray, Lord, that you would preserve us, that you would grow us in love, grow us in maturity. Lord, you would further conform us to the image of your Son, for your own name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hello and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 
Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.